I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I have a, uh, a really exciting guest, uh, Matt. We've, we've known each other for quite a while. I don't know how many years, and it might age us to even think about, but uh, I want to introduce everyone to, uh, to Matt Cohen. Matt is uh, a pretty exceptional guy. He's uh, you know used to be a boring banker like myself, but he found the light and uh, started uh, his kind of entrepreneurial career as an investor in Turnstile Solutions, which was... Uh, sold in 2017, and he has the uh, the esteemed uh, honor of being the most clicked show more on LinkedIn. So uh, you know, as I went through his LinkedIn profile, I had to press show more about three or four times. So uh, a, a tremendous uh, amount of experience as it relates to uh, investing, being on boards, which I'm sure we'll delve into. So. Matt, really appreciate it. And, and, and I can't forget, Matt is the founder and managing partner of Ripple Ventures. Matt, thank you very much for, uh, for joining me. Thanks for having me, Elon. Really, uh, really excited to be here. And I appreciate all the praise. I maybe just put too much bullshit on my LinkedIn profile, which is why you have to click it so many times, but I'll take the credit. Hey, that's okay. That's okay. Um, well, you want to hide the, the boring banker stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. It's all the way at the bottom. There you go. So, so, so Matt, for those that don't know about Ripple, and I, I want to go way back, but let's start there. Just give people an idea of, 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 of what Ripple is and why you started it. Yeah. So thanks again for having me. You know, Ripple Ventures is something that kind of started a bit as a, a passion project. You know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I sold a tech company, Turnstile, in 2017. We can talk about that after, but that experience really helped me think about how to scale and build early stage technology companies as uh, you know, angel investor slash, you know, moonlight operator. And I was really curious as to how so many uh, other startups were getting started and how I could try to offer any sort of advice or services, uh, you know, in lieu of just boring capital. And I was living in Boston at the time. My girlfriend, now wife, was working as a dentist at Tufts University. And I was down there working for a tech startup called Street Context. And I was spending a lot of free time just hanging around the incubators out of MIT and Harvard and Cambridge and just seeing all the amazing startups that were coming out of there and worked on. And I really wanted to see how I can get involved. But I knew you know, quickly that sending emails out to people with mattcohen at gmail.com really wasn't going to get me anywhere. And a lot of people were just ignoring me. So I came up with the name Ripple Ventures really as a name to uh, sort of give myself a little bit more uh, of a platform to reach out to these MIT and Harvard founders to try and get in touch with them and see if they were interested in you know, maybe working with me or taking some of my capital as they were just getting their company started. And so I built the website, you know, rippleventures.com, uh, all by myself. I created a terrible logo on, on some shitty website. It cannot be worse than my first logo, I promise <laughs> you. I had a flame above the eye, okay? So, like, let's... It's it was bad. close. It, was, it had, like, a, a, a wave with, like, uh, bar charts in the middle of it. It was, like, the total opposite of what it should be. But anyways... We ended up, uh, or I ended up uh, getting in touch with a couple of interesting and exciting founders. And from the money I made from the sale of Turnstile, I had basically put it all right back into the ecosystem in like 12 investments. And some of them turned out very well, like Tokyo Smoke and a couple early enterprise blockchain investments. And I was kind of off to the races as a, 
a decently known angel investor under the name Ripple Ventures. And, and you've subsequently raised some money like through a formal fund, I believe. Yeah. So, I mean, to take it even one step further, um, some family offices, you know, that you and I both know, some wealthy real estate family offices back in Toronto and some in New York recognized what I was doing as an angel in sort of 2016, 2017, 2018. Uh, and some of them were also, you know, uh, collectively involved in a small way in turnstile. They uh, said, hey, you know, we think you should go out and raise a venture fund and do this in a proper GPLP structure. And I never really wanted to raise a traditional venture fund. I didn't come from the private equity venture capital world. As you mentioned, you know, I spent over a decade working at RBC and on Wall Street. And so I had no idea really what was that like, but I kind of leapt, at, leapt in with two feet. I had a really close friend who was a good lawyer, a friend of mine at uh, Goodman's, Jamie Furston, and he kind of just like walked me through it. And I spoke with a lot of people in the industry. And a year later, I was you know off with my first fund in 2018 with $10 million dollars. You know, made a significant contribution myself, and I brought on an operating partner, Michael, as well, to kind of jump in with me. And uh, we were off to the races with our first fund in 2018. Awesome. So let's take it. Let's let's go way back. Like I'm always curious about like what creates an entrepreneur, right? Like you know, it's it's interesting. I'm a you know I run a financial firm, and you know I'm an investor, but I'm an entrepreneur, right? Like people forget that like we have to build our companies as well. Right, like for whatever reason, but when you're on the other side of the table, they don't view you through the same lens. But like, you're you're an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. What created you? Like, tell me about your 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 origination story. Like, like where did you grow up? Like, what were you as a kid? Like, I'm I'm always curious to these things. Yeah, I definitely think a lot of it has to do with the way that I was brought up, or the lack of things that I was exposed to as a child. You know, my my parents were both very hardworking. My dad owned a, a fruit and vegetable market in Toronto, uh, you know, slugged it out every day from like 4 a.m. in the farmer's market and then until uh, nine o'clock to the store closed. And I used to work there when I was a child. I remember like on March break when friends of mine were going down to, you know, Mexico and Cancun and stuff like that or on ski holidays. I was getting up at three in the morning, go with my dad down on the farmer's market, uh, buying produce and learning how to like buy things and then resell them in the uh, in the fruit and vegetable store. And so that experience really uh, kind of crystallized my idea of like hard work does actually pay off. And there's a lot of things that like, it's okay that you don't have access to it now, but as you keep on building and building and building, you'll eventually break through and get access to certain things. But there was another side of the, the coin that I realized that really made uh, a difference in who I was, which is, you know, building out a network beyond what you grow up in, in the bubble that you grow up in is really important. And I think network effects and like the six degrees of separation and stuff that really has uh, a serious impact on people's outcomes in life. And what I mean by that is if people just sort of stay in the bubble, they grow up, grow up in from like kindergarten to elementary to high school and then university, that limits the amount of people that you can end up, you know, working with or being a part of in terms of any type of opportunities that come across your desk. And what I was very you know, adamant about doing as soon as I left high school was trying to get out of the bubble I grew up in. So I went to school on the East Coast of Canada. Uh, as soon as I graduated, I got a job working on Wall Street, luckily through a connection through my brother. Uh, and then I worked my ass off uh, on the trading desk for 5 a.m. till 10 p.m. every day. And then ended up luckily getting moved down to New York right before the crisis in 20, uh, 2008. And all of that sort of culmination of like getting your ass kicked basically for like 10, 15 years with sacrificing a lot of like 
hey, we're going to the bar tonight. And I'm like, can I got to be up at 4 a.m. tomorrow. We have a, you know, a big bot deal or something we're working on uh, with, with the team. Uh, just learning why sacrifices matter, I think was a huge lesson for me in terms of giving me the, the strength to go through the brick wall and pound my head through it as an entrepreneur later on in life. You know, sacrifice is such an interesting thing. I, I, I've spoken about this before, but, you know, when, when I was a kid, if you, if someone were to say, uh, you know, to my mom, like, oh, what does your, what does your son do? And if you were to say like an entrepreneur, they'd be like, oh, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, you know, where now it's like the new rock star, right? Like there's so much romanticism yeah. around being an entrepreneur. People completely discount what it actually means and what it actually takes. So A, do you agree? And B, are you seeing the same level of sacrifice in the new generation of, of kind of entrepreneur that, that I know you and I have to go through uh, to get to where, 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 we, where we are at? Yeah, first off, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I talk about this even when uh, we started Turnstile. You know, I wrote the first check to get it started. It was $50,000. And and that was a lot of money for me at the time. And I was still working at RBC. So I was kind of moonlighting at Turnstile when we got it started. But the the true founders, Devin Wright and Chris Gilpin, you know, they sacrificed a ton. You know, Chris moved back from San Francisco when he was working at Apple and lived in the office for six months on the couch with like nothing to have. Devin barely wore clothes because he was like still had student debt and he was barely getting by in terms of like actually paying for his rent. He had, you know, DJ gigs at nighttime. So yeah, the sacrifice was real. And I also agree that like, it is sort of cool and sexy to say you're an entrepreneur now, but that's because people are getting misguided by the exits and the dollars going into these companies, but nobody sees the day to day. Yeah, it's headlines. It's all sort of like splash in the pan kind of stuff. And, and I talk about this a lot, even with our portfolio companies today, you know, money does not solve problems for you. You still have to learn about sacrifice and grit and hustle and all those things. Money will not replace that. It will just make you go faster when you have figured those things out. And so a lot of the entrepreneurs, when we sold Turnstile, I wrote a really long post about how, you know, everyone's going to see the headline that we sold to Yelp for, you know, 30 million Canadian and everyone's going to think that's an incredible success. But like Devin still had student debt the day we sold. He still had a massive visa bill the day we sold that he was waiting to pay off. And so the sacrifices that a lot of the entrepreneurs uh, that we back at Ripple are similar to what it is that I first experienced with my you know first startup at Turnstile. And so we do try to find those entrepreneurs. It's harder these days for sure. Because money is so available. Yeah. And money's not only available, but it's being thrust upon them in ways that they never even thought would be available. Like the tides have shifted completely. And so if you want 5 million, you're now being offered 50 million. Or if you want 10 million, you're now being offered 100 million. And so it's really different for an entrepreneur to sort of not get blindsided by that excess capital uh, and then figure out like, yeah, don't worry, I'll just pay someone to do that. No, I'll just hire someone to do that. And that, that sh- you know, struggle, that necessary struggle which builds muscle for you to be have perseverance and learn how to deal with like adversity is something I hope my kids have to go through one day, to be honest with you. And we just had our first daughter and like, yeah, I, I to- true, true. Thank you. I truly hope that there is, you know, it's some form of adversity that they have to go through or else it's not going to be a, an easy path later in life. I want to come back to that because that's an interesting topic, but I want to double down on this. I'm a huge believer in failure being an important piece of the puzzle. 
I personally love investing in people that have failed in the past because I think that it, it creates you know a thicker skin and it, it, it allows you know me to understand how someone deals with adversity and they can pick themselves back up. What's your view on failure, right? Like like when you see an entrepreneur who has failed in the past, like like how how do you view that? You know, it's a fine line between having someone who's experienced failure while they can still pick themselves up again and somebody who has not experienced failure and has, you know, bright eye, bushy tail and sort of blue sky targets in their mind. You know, you don't want someone who's gone through failure and is just a half glass full kind of person their whole life. And that's really, you know, hard to, to overcome if you've had failure and all of a sudden you see a sniff of something that may turn into a bigger failure, you almost walk away. You know, a lot of people don't realize that founders who own companies in the beginning, they get whittled down through dilution and things like that. And you don't want them to just walk from your company or their company just because, you know, you have a bit more equity than them. And so like founder flight is a huge risk in startups and people don't understand. And so if somebody who has gone through failure is coming back with that failure on their chest and they're proud of it, and they've come through the other side and they have ideas on why they failed, that's great. But if you, if you have people that have failed and they still don't accept the failure or understand why they failed, I'm not really excited to partner with that person. That makes that makes a ton of sense. I would totally agree with that. You we ask founders, like, you know, what happened in your last start? Tell me about something that didn't work out. And they kind of give you a bit of a fluffy answer because they know you want to hear something. But I really want to hear about the process they went through and how they recovered and why they're using that as fire for their next time around. Totally. You mentioned something at the beginning. You said that, you know, part of where you are today is because of what you weren't exposed to. You know, we, we, we glossed over the story of, of, you know, being in the farmer's market. What do you mean by that? You know, let's go back there, you know, because something that struck me about your intro is like your natural curiosity. Right. Like you, you, you spoke about spending time at MIT and some of these incubators. Like that's not a normal thing to do just to like hang out and like I'm bored. Like I'm going to go spend time with these these tech. Entrepreneurs. Yeah. You're clearly just a naturally curious person. And I, I would imagine that it does relate in some way to that earlier comment around some of the things you weren't exposed to. I think it's something that I just maybe was, you know, genetically born with a little bit, but also I think, you know, I remember as a kid, I would, you know, go out and, you know, hang out with some of my uh, friends' houses and they were pretty, you know, wealthy families. And I spent more time talking with the parents than I did with the kids sometimes. I was always so curious what these parents did to manage their families, to manage their professional lives. Like, you know, I always remember hearing how most people don't become successful because of their you know, T4 income statement, right? It's not that what makes them successful. It's what they do with their discretionary decision-making authority, right? Like where do they spend their, their money, their time, their passion projects, you know, a lot of those things. And it was amazing for me to sit there and sort of be at the coffee table talking with the father and being like, so tell me like, why did you do this to the house? Or like, why did you, uh, why do you have the, uh, the logo of the Toronto Raptors like on your letterhead there? And I would start to ask questions. They'd be like, oh, like I'm on the board or like I'm part of this charity group. I'm like, well, what is that? I and mean, what is that? Like, I don't know how many times I always ask why and what, how to people older than me to try to understand, you know, how they looked at the world. And, and that was something I remember as a kid doing a lot. Um, and my friends would come in and be like, yo, why are you still talking to my dad? Like, come on downstairs. We're playing mini sticks. 
this is like a mirror. I was the exact same way. I was so uninterested in being in the basement with everyone else. Like I was in the kitchen talking to mom and dad about that kind of stuff. Like it's really interesting. You know, you spoke about being in these homes and you, you mentioned earlier this, this idea of network effect. I, I, I'm not going to ask you about the, the merits of having a good network because I think that's fairly obvious and most people understand at least at a you know, basic level why yeah. it's important. My question is, is far, you know, is more specific. How do you maintain a good network? Because like one of the things I struggle with is, is like, I have this network. It is a good network. People trust me. But like, when I look at my, my personal database, I have like 1800 names. Like it's absolutely impossible to maintain good relationships with that many people. For my own, my own purpose, I'm super curious as to how you maintain that, 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 that network. So I think one lesson I learned, well, first of all, everyone I hope understands the six degrees of separation theory. If they don't, I'll quickly explain it to them. There was a study done, I think in Pennsylvania, where a guy handed out 3,000 envelopes sealed with something in them to 3,000 people. And he said, I want you to hand this to the most financially influential person you know in your network. And within six passes, so sometimes shorter than six, it ended up on the same person's desk in that same community in Pennsylvania. And so that was the six degrees of separation, like practice. Basically everyone through six degrees knew this one person based on the criteria they were asked to give it to the next person on. And usually, yeah, exactly. The outlier is six degrees. Exactly. And so for, for me, there's two ways I think about a network. One is people, you know, right? The inner layer of people, you can't really have more than many, like your inner layer of people you talk to very often. I think I, I, 150 is like the, the max limit. It is. Yeah. It's around 100, 150. Then there's like the, the middle layer where it's, you talk to them every quarter, you catch up with them, you see them at functions, things like that. And then there's the outer layer who you basically just know on LinkedIn, right? And you don't know anything else about them. What I find more interesting about how people think about networks is how they use their networks only when they really want to or really need to and not sacrifice someone else to get through the network. So I have this like 10,000 coffees rule where I say, I want to go have coffee with, let's say, Warren Buffett, but I'm not going to get to him right away. I have to go through 10,000 people to finally get to him. And so when somebody asked me to meet for coffee or have a conversation and I don't know them, in my back of my mind, I'm like, this may get me one person closer to that 10,000 rule with Warren Buffett. So I'm going to take this coffee. I'm going to take this meeting. And I always would make time for those types of conversations. You know, if that person was professional in their approach and their, you know, their request to kind of connect uh, without trying to sell me something, uh, I always have those conversations. When someone asks me for an introduction to somebody else in my network, I never make a blind introduction. I always ask first and I make it extremely easy for that person to say yes or no, meaning, meaning I'll give them a link to a calendar to book a time. None of this like six emails back and forth. So I always want to make sure I'm taking care of my network. Like it's my network. So I want to meet, be very professional with their time. And if somebody is trying to get into my network, I'm also very open to using or sorry, uh, accepting that new person into my network, as long as they also treat my time with respect and sort of have this sort of like, you know, yin yang between the two of us. I don't want it to be like just one sided every time. So that's sort of how I think about networks and maintaining it. Well, that's a whole other thing. I mean, you've got a CRM of 800, 1000 people. I've got a CRM uh, of, of half of that. 
What I realized though, is we all have short-term memories. And so it's not possible for me to keep up to date with everyone. So that's why, to be honest, I use LinkedIn a lot because I think it's a great way for me to stay at the top of people's news feeds and keep my network up to date on what I'm doing so that it triggers something in their mind to be like, oh, I just saw Matt's doing something in like, you know, the cannabis space. I'm going to reach out to him and connect him with Bob. That's the way that I kind of keep my network up to date without having to try to have a phone call with 800 people every month. And what's your view on where you draw the line between business and personal and like, do you build personal relationships or are they business relationships? I'm like, I'm what you see is what you get. Like I don't have a business version. So like all my real relationships are always personal. And people say like, oh, business is business. Like I just don't agree with that. Like business is always personal to me. But mm. where do you draw the line? Look, in my business, I'm always fundraising. So uh, kind of like yours. So like, you know, there's always some hint of like a, a business potential but I have very, very strict rules when it comes to like that kind of stuff, which is when you ask for advice, you get money. And when you ask for money, you get advice. So if you start out a relationship asking for money or some type of like business, you're not going to get what you want. You're going to get a bunch of advice and or a bunch of like, hey, I don't really you know, feel like this is a fit. But if you go to someone and ask them for true, honest advice and thoughts on you know, what you're doing, your opinions and share some you know, maybe insights they didn't know about, then you end up getting to the conversation of money more naturally and whether or not they want to be a part of the opportunity. And so I always kind of never start with the, you know, ask. I just start with the, hey, I am involved in some of these interesting, you know, opportunities. Love to talk with them about you, but I'm not here to ask for money, just to share things and maybe provide some knowledge on what you may not already know. And that's sort of a way I always start the conversations with new relationships. How important is mentorship to you? So, I mean, one... I've been very fortunate to have older brothers uh, who were my parents growing up, for sure. Uh, you know, I, my parents separated when I was young. That had a, a big impact on me. My brothers were older. They were sort of starting their careers, so they started mentoring me. And then I ended up getting um, mentored by uh, a very, still a very close friend of mine from RBC who took me under his wing. His name is Jeff Fields, and you know, he's still a very, very close friend of mine. And he mentored me uh, up until this day still about just sort of raw, humble advice. I think mentors are extremely important, but they have to kind of come around naturally. Like I said, you know, if you're, if you're going out asking someone to be a mentor, you might not get a mentor. You might just get like a tutor, you know, but when you ask someone to just be, you know, for advice, they end up maturing into a mentor. Just the whole money advice thing as well. When, I mean, you've become obviously a mentor to others now as well. And my question is not really about that, but like, let me cut to the chase. I mean, you pick winners for a living, right? Hopefully, hopefully you pick winners and not losers. What are the, what are the attributes? I mean, forget about business model for a second, right? Like, like you obviously have to believe in the business, but you and I both know that you're, you're, you're really betting on jockeys. Like, and if people don't understand that, they really like, I know an investor is a bad investor when they come to me with a business model and don't even speak about who's running the business. Like immediately I know that's, that's not a good investor. How do you pick jockeys? What are those like, what, what are the tenants that you look for? And, and, and I know it's a difficult question because like I know incredibly great introverted CEOs, I know incredibly great extroverted CEOs, but there, there usually are, and I have a few things that I look for. Like as an example, I will always go for lunch or dinner with someone. I wanna see how they, they treat the service staff, right? Like I, I won't invest with someone who's not a decent human being who treats people respectfully, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I know that that's a recipe for a bad culture in a company. Mm -hmm. So, but you, you have more experience in this than I do. What are those things that you look for? 
It's really difficult these days, especially in the tech industry, where there's so many different types of personalities and quirkiness. I mean, so many people would have probably met Elon Musk a million times and still not backed him, right? You know, there's very different types of forms of, and, and, and personalities when it comes to success. You can't really just say one size fits all. Now, there is certain things that you kind of have opinion biases to, which you have to set aside sometimes, meaning like, I like someone who looks like me. I like someone who dresses like me. I like someone who likes the same food as me. Like you, everyone likes to feel like there's a mutual connection with someone. But the curiosity part of me always says, well, I'm not going to just shut someone down because of the way they are. I'm curious as how they got that way. What's the process that made them become who they are? And if I find that person is also as curious as I am and also as driven and passionate about what they're trying to dedicate their life to, you know, I had a call yesterday with a founder group that was trying to raise a small amount of money. And, and I said, guys, you are trying to build something that is incredibly challenging and you, you're only asking for like a million dollars. Like, why are you trying to do this? Like, do you not, do you not believe in yourselves or do you not think the outcome is that big? Like, what is it that you want to do? So a lot of the times I just say the question, hey, if I offer you $20 million tomorrow, would you sell this thing to me? And if their answer is like, absolutely, I wouldn't even think twice about it. Then I know they're not the kind of founder I want to work with because they're motivated by money, right? They're motivated by a quick flip and getting money and moving on to something else. And, and that's an easy filter for me. You know, I also say sometimes people don't understand the difference between money and equity. You know, I'm giving up money, my money to buy your equity in your company because I think your equity is worth more than my money. That's the simple economic trade. And if you look at my money more than your own equity, then we don't have a match. It's very simple as that. So, so a lot of founders just like, they give away their company a lot of the times. And I always ask them like, why'd you do that? Well, I need the money. Well, why did you need the money? Like, didn't you think a lot of the things you were doing? Well, I couldn't really do it myself. I need to have a bunch of people. Then you're not the person that I thought you were, right? Because then you're just going to take money from me. And as soon as you run into another problem, you're going to go to the next guy over and say, hey, I need some more money. I couldn't figure out this problem. So I have founders who literally will not take more money because they want to figure out what they're doing themselves the right way, the hard way, so that when they do come back for money, it's going to be worth 10x more, their equity. I mean, you speak about drive and passion, and I totally agree that those are like some of the most important tenets in, in, in an entrepreneur. How do you gauge if someone's being honest? Like, I, I'm, I'm always amazed, like, even in uh, like interviews for, you know, hiring employees for the company, I've now come to a point where like, I used to like say like, I'm an incredible judge of, of people. Now I, I don't agree. Like, I'm always amazed at how wrong I am, you know, wrong in the positive and the negative. How do you get confidence that you're reading the situation correctly? It's really hard. I mean, this is what we kind of get paid to do, uh, especially at the riskiest stage and early stage venture is try to figure out if someone is being authentic or not. We do references for sure. And we try to not even use their references. We go around the back door and try to find other references in our network. And that's also, you know, one part of the, the checkbox. But the other thing is just really trying, as you say, like go out for dinners or try to have like a, a real in real life conversation with these people and see what motivates them. And you're still, you're going to be wrong a lot of the times. Like we've made investments into bad people, like people that just were not who they thought they were. And those, you know, those didn't turn out great. Or I, I've done that personally. And, and that sucks. But I learned a lot from those lessons. And I try to apply them to today. And so in this world, especially in the Zoom world, where you're not getting to meet a lot of people in person, we try to spend a lot of time having just 
real conversations about other stuff rather than just like money and like, you know, fundraising and valuations. Like, talk to me about this person. Why do you want this person to be your head of marketing? What is it that you find about them that is like the person you think is going to be worth what you're willing to pay them? And if they walk us through a process of how they got there, that seems logical, then we know that they're very thoughtful about that. And there's there's personality tests uh, you can do. We have those that we sometimes do with our CEOs, like the Harvard study personality test. Uh, they're pretty you know, intense in terms of what you can discover about a person, but they, they are ways that you can also filter for personality traits as well. I would say though, it's really not about just taking a first blush response and, and brushing that over a person's personality for the rest of their you know, relationship with you. I think relationships are meant to evolve I think they don't happen in a first meeting. Like, you know, you said you go for dinner with someone if they don't treat their waiter nice. You don't know if that person's had a bad day. Someone may have just passed away in their life and they're like so stressed out and they're like, they shouldn't even be in that meeting, right? And so you don't know what it is that's causing that person to act that way. And so I always say like, one, I, I'm very open to giving people multiple chances. Like I had a blow up the other day with one of my CEOs. I shouldn't have done it. I was so passionate about why I was right and they were wrong. And then I had to like, to call the guy up later and be like, look, I'm sorry about that. I was having a rough day with, you know, a newborn parent, you know, blaming on the baby kind of thing. And so I think it's really important to have those like multiple meetings, multiple conversations to get a sense of when you're catching someone on a good day or a bad day. And then you, after a couple of times, you'll get a sense of who they really are. That's my honest opinion. That's interesting. I mean, I could tell you that's, you know, for me, if I have a really bad reaction the first time, I don't give someone a second chance. So maybe I should. That's opened my eyes. So appreciate that that perspective. No worries. Everyone has different opinions on it. Yeah. No, it's, a, you know, it, and it's a, you know, something you said earlier as well about taking the coffee meeting. I have purposefully over the last five years said no more and more and more and more. It's hard. I mean, you're a busy guy and so am I. Yeah. Like I'm an extreme point where like, I literally say no, like as a starting point, um, which probably isn't right either. So I, I I say no too. And I'll tell you when I say no, just to make you feel better a bit. Um, when someone comes at me directly with an ask, yeah, like directly with an ask. Those LinkedIn messages are the worst. Like who that works on, I have no idea. No, but what I do appreciate, I honestly appreciate is when someone takes the time to read through my profile, read a bit more about my background, talk about something that I've talked about, and I will take the time to respond back to them and say, thanks so much. Now's not a great time. We're raising a fund or something, or I actually am free for 20 minutes. Here's a link to my calendar, book it on Zoom. I'm happy to give you my advice and opinion on what you're looking at. I just did that the other day with someone who wrote a really thoughtful response to one of my LinkedIn posts. And so mm -hmm. I gave the person 20 minutes and I thought, I, you know, I'm happy to do that more and more. Isn't it amazing how rare that individual is? <laughs> These days it is, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, I want to come back to switching gears completely. You spoke about having your first child and hoping to instill adversity. And I've had this conversation with a lot of successful people. It's something that I worry about a lot. I have two kids and, you know, I, I did not grow up wealthy. You know, we were immigrants from South Africa and, you know, Definitely did not have a uh, you know a wealthy upbringing uh, you know originally, and I was a stock boy at Chocolate Drug Mart. I was you know a laborer on a construction site, and like I know my kids aren't going to do that. Like I just know. So how, like how do you think about creating that adversity? I mean, yeah. you're super new to this, obviously. Yeah, I've um, thought about it for a long time though, because yeah. I'm, I'm 37 now, and like I, I you know we just had our first kid, so like I've had a, a bunch of years to think about, it. and I have two older brothers who also have. A, a lot of kids. I've got like six nieces and nephews. So 
I talk about it with them all the time because we all grew up the same way. You know, we all grew up the same way. Adversity is um, so important. Like I know that I'm successful because I had adversity. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think about this a lot. And I think, you know, we have a baby girl, which, you know, is a little bit harder sometimes, but you know, what I've been told is don't treat them any different than you would a boy when it comes to like adversity and all those things. Uh, so I'm trying to keep that uh, in mind. I think, you know, as, as you said, I don't know, but my opinion on this is there is going to be a lot of events that happen in a child's life where you cannot rush to their safety and protect them at all costs. Like, for sure, life and death, you want to be there for them. But there's a lot of times where they're going to lose or they're going to, you know, get frustrated and they're not going to be there. And it's important for you to instead, and I've read a bunch of, you know, stuff on their studies on like what makes successful kids. And it's not about getting to the end result. That's important, which a lot of people think is getting that trophy. It's about breaking down the process at which they had to get there, even if it was a failure outcome that makes kids successful. So if you take the time to focus on the process that they went through. So for example, they show you a painting and you know, it looks like absolute garbage, but you sit down and you say like, why did you choose that color? Or why did you paint this shape there? Asking those questions to children, I've heard and studies have said that that is what makes them think differently and, you know, kind of bring upon them more successful outcomes. Or if they have, you know, lost in a job interview, or if they didn't get accepted to college, again, focusing on the process they went to get there is more important than focusing on getting the end result that you want them to have. And I think for me, I had to come upon that naturally. It's just like, that was part of the genetic, I think that in me, that just made me curious and made me focus on the why and not about like, you know, why I wasn't going away on, on, uh, trips to Cancun with other kids or, you know, going on uh, ski trips with uh, other families to Aspen. Like I did ask myself, like, you know, or cry about it. I just said like, well, why are they going on it? How do they go on those trips? Oh, it's because they do this, this, and this. Okay. Well, I need to start investing in that. And even still with my business today, you know, we are building a fund that's not very large, but we're building the infrastructure around us as if we are a hundred plus million dollar fund. I don't take a salary. I put it all back into the business. I give it back to, you know, our teammates and our back office team and our creative designers and all that stuff, because I want to understand how to build the proper process around me to have success later on. And I think that's important with kids as well. I hope. Yeah. And guess what? We're, we're, we're going to fuck up somewhere along the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, we've been going, I could speak to you for another hour, but I know we, uh, we got to wrap up soon. I want to, I want to end it with this idea of genetics. You've mentioned it twice. My, 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 my podcast is called Dealmaker's DNA for a reason. And I, I imagine you know that I'm kind of obsessed with this idea of nature and nurture. Yeah, for sure. Totally. I mean, uh, I, I definitely read a lot of this, you know, uh, true niogen I take every day. I think about like how our bodies are totally created to support our mind. Our mind is the only thing that matters. Everything we do every day is to keep our mind functional and continuously learning. So, you know, why do we eat food? Well, it's to keep our our muscles going? Why do we have to keep our muscles healthy so that our body can keep moving? Why do we have to keep our body moving? Because our brain is trying to continuously be exposed to new signals and learn new things. And I'm more and more interested in how our minds are totally able to perform at such a high level. So I think, you know, genetically, we're, we're at this point where we're starting to realize exactly what kind of like the purpose is of our brains and how we can manipulate a lot of the things that we take uh, and process in our brains. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation on, you know, supercomputers and AI and ML and stuff. But 
I am more and more interested in how to become more efficient and productive with my mind by doing all the things right by my body. So, you know, giving up meat was an easy one after I did a tiny little bit of research on how bad it is for me. I've done a little bit of research on sort of like recovery and, you know, uh, a lot of the things that we take for granted, uh, like water, just the way like how much water you drink or what kind of water you drink. I think it's really important for people to recognize, like you can change small parts of your DNA by taking part in certain uh, aspects of life and how you, you know, treat yourself and your body. I truly believe that. But how, so, how much of you is pre-programmed versus like, what can, like, how much can you manipulate? Like you're never going to be an NBA basketball player, right? Like that's with, okay. <laughs> I'm five, six and I'm Jewish. I'm not going to ever hope to, hey, be, I'm but I get it. I'm still never going to be, a, I'm Jewish. Yeah. So it depends. Like, I think, I don't know. I think people who grew up in third world countries are, you know, no genetically different than we are, but yet they have such a different outlook on life and their drive to be successful. But yeah, like, you know, cancer and all those terrible diseases and things. Yeah. It's really fucking scary. But I think also there are a lot of things you can do earlier on in your life to elongate that. And I'm talking about like your, the food you put in your body, the air you breathe, the exercise you get, the meditation you do, all of those things. And, you know, Elon, you had a kind of revelation through COVID, you know, you lost a ton of weight and you look phenomenal. So you, you went through that change. And I think as more and more people start to understand what power they have over their own, you know, intuitions and also just like, you know, pains, like hunger pains, right? Like the feeling of hunger is not really what you think it is, right? It's just something that triggered you. You saw like a sweet chocolate uh, on a counter and you're like, oh, I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat that. No, your body is taking a signal. Your mind is taking a signal and telling you you're hungry. You're not. Also insulin levels because of shitty diets, <laughs> but we can go totally. do that. <laughs> yeah. So fasting for sure is something that like, I, I believe in as well. And I think it has a really great way to reset your biome uh, and your, and your stomach and, and all those other things. So yeah, we can have a whole podcast on that, but I do believe there are ways that even if you're genetically pre-programmed and you have parents that are, you know, obese and things like that doesn't mean you have to be, I totally believe that. So Matt, to sign off, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of people that uh, want to take you up on that coffee and send you a, a, a smart, you know, uh, message into your inbox how can people best a connect with you and b follow uh, you know what you're up to? Well, we definitely have a pretty decent social footprint. So LinkedIn, obviously, uh, you know Instagram. We're now on TikTok. Um, we, you know, you can tweet at me at Maddie B. Cohen or Ripple Ventures. You know, just find us anywhere. My email is directly on our website. We don't hide it at all. Uh, we have, you know, very open lines of communication with everyone who reaches out. All I ask, uh, truthfully, is like do a little bit of research to understand what it is we focus on, you know, where we invest, uh, what we're, we're excited and passionate about. And if it's truly not a fit, like I'll tell you that, but I think you'll be able to filter it out yourself pretty easily because we do put like an FAQ up on our website and stuff. So all I ask is entrepreneurs and, and interested parties, you know, happily do a little research before reaching out. Yeah. Don't reach out with a bot. <laughs> exactly. Well, Matt, thank, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Elon. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.